Welcome to It's a Show, presented by OpenHighway.com. My name is Greg Shannon. In this episode, we call the UK for the second time this week. This time to have a conversation with bassist Nick Feldman, who's also the lead vocalist and along with Jeremy Ryder, known professionally as Jack Hughes, a co-founding member of Wang Chung. Nick Feldman also initially had a nom de plume and checked into hotels under the name Nick Despig, probably because he is a rock star and the band caused fandomonium in the 1980s. Hello! New York City, I can't believe it. It's been a long time since we played here, but I love it. I hope you're going to enjoy the show. We're Wang Chung, and I hope everybody is going to have the proverbial fun. In total, the group has released six records, including Huang Chung in 1982, Points on the Curve 1984, the soundtrack to Live and Die in L.A., which also became their third record in 1985, then there was Mosaic in 86, The Warmer Side of Cool in 89, and in 2012, Taser Up. Wang Chung found their greatest success in the USA with five top 40 hits in America, all charting between 1983 and 1987, including Dance Hall Days, number 16 in the summer of 84, Everybody Have Fun Tonight, number 2 in 86, and Let's Go, which peaked at number 9 in 1987. You sing, let's go baby, let's go baby, come on! I want to hear you sing, let's go Louder, louder. Let's go, baby, let's go, baby, come on! Wang Chung is currently touring Canada with Cutting Crew, bringing their concert experience to fans right here in Alberta, starting in Edmonton at the Pearl Showroom Casino Yellowhead on the 15th and making stops in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario, including a date at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre in Toronto on the 23rd of June to wrap things up. I connected with Wang Chung's Nick Feldman at his home in the UK. Hello. Hi, is this the Honorable Nick Feldman? Yes, it is. One second. <laughs> Just getting my headphones on. Sorry, hello. Yes, it is the Honourable Nick Feldman. <laughs> Dishonourable, I think. How, how do you know I'm the Honourable? <laughs> You're the son of an English baron. You are peerage. This is <laughs> okay, amazing. You've been, you've been doing your research. Don't tell anyone, okay? <laughs> does, that get you, does that get you free parking downtown London, or what do you get out of that? Anything? I've never, ever used that title in my whole life. You're kidding. Because I, I think, to be honest with you, it's got nothing to do... I didn't earn it, you know what I mean? So, nothing to do with me. You could have been in the Make upper balcony at the back row for the royal wedding with that. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't be less interested in that one. I'm so not interested in the royal family, to be honest with you. This is so good, because this is such a dichotomy, talking to Nick. Nick and I bonded over the royal wedding, and you have you don't want anything to do with it. Well, I, mean, I think we have a civic duty to be irreverent about it, that's what I think. This is going to be a great conversation, <laughs> I think too. It's like... <laughs> I think it's the whole royal family. It's like a soap opera to me, but that's fine, you know, soap operas. I quite enjoy the old soap opera, but I'm also aware those aren't real people in soap operas. They're actors. Does some of your cynicism come from the fact that you've studied psychology in Liverpool at the university? Uh, you certainly have researched me, haven't you? <laughs> um, I don't know if it came from that. I just think it's... Uh, I, don't, I just don't like being kind of brainwashed into thinking what you're... You know, 
you're supposed to sort of think or whatever you're supposed to think. And I just think everyone should think for themselves a bit more, you know. Yeah, so I'm just going to check that off. Not a fan of lemmings. Yes, but we're having our own little same version of people trying to put a spoke in the wheels of the way things are. Right. With our ridiculous Brexit, which I think is just as crazy as the Donald Trump phenomenon. You know, it's very similar. I think we'll create hardships for the very people who voted for it in their sort of delusion that it's going to, you know, there's make America great again. That was Donald Trump's one which is obviously an illusion. The, the English one was, you know, take back control, you know, take back control from those evil Europeans. And that's another illusion, you know, that's, the only thing that's going to happen is the elite of the UK will take over instead of the elite of Europe. It's not going to make any difference to anyone in terms of control. will probably be very bad for the country and therefore... It'll be a less prosperous country, and the first people to suffer in those kind of situations are people who are most fed up with their situation and those who therefore voted for Brexit. One of the paradoxes of, you know, this thing. I've got this slogan, I think it should be, Make America Great Britain Again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think creative people have the weight of the world on their shoulders because your brain is always working. It will never shut off. So you're soaking in all of this, everything that that happens in the world. As a member of a successful group, you've traveled the world. You, You have perspective, which many, many people who make their vote on voting day do not have. It's just a lack of opportunity and perspective from a lot of people. The creative have to take it on their shoulders and go, what, you know, I can't take the way the world is. My brain hurts. I mean, I don't feel that I'm anywhere in the same intelligence zone as you because I have an ag diploma from agriculture school (laughs) and a broadcasting certificate. But I don't believe that. I really feel that. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. I got thrown out of university. So uh, there you go. So you're more intelligent than me. You know what? University is only one type of education, and Wang Chung gave you a a whole different type of education in the world. And I have to ask, I'm looking at the original title of the band, Wang Chung with an H. I know David Geffen stepped in and said, hold on, this is not marketable. Where did the original name come from? Jack was reading a book, Jack, my partner in Wang Chung, was reading a book about the electronic contemporary composer called Stockhausen, Karl Heinz Stockhausen. It was a very sort of academic right. book about Stockhausen. And it, there was a footnote in, in one of the passages about this thing called Huang Zhang, which was obviously a Chinese thing, you know, Chinese musical term. And it was spelt phonetically, you know, H-U-A-N-G in the book. So it's not obviously the correct spelling is is Chinese in Chinese characters. It was just how it was written in the book. We decided to, Jack sort of sheepishly suggested it to me. What do you think if we called that? You know, I think he expected me to go, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? Right. And I thought it really, really appealed to me. So we decided to be called that. But then no one could pronounce it properly. So everyone was getting it wrong, you know, like Hong Chong. And we, had so, we got so fed up with it that people getting it, mispronouncing it we decided to change the name completely, you know, to something utterly different. And it was David Geffen who said, don't change the name, it's a great name, just change the spelling to a W so people will pronounce it correctly. And he was right, and I'm glad we kept it. It's one of those names that is a kind of talking point in itself and, of course, ended up in one of our big songs. Having fun. 
song for party lovers everywhere. Everybody, have fun tonight! You made it into a verb. And I mean, you know, I was in high school in the 80s. And when you guys came out, I mean, it was instant. We couldn't afford bands, so we made mixtapes. And you guys were a part of every single sock hop, dance, everything we ever did at Clavette Composite High School in the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan. So we. That's great. We appreciate it. Is it true that you were an A&R guy and you were on the team that signed Adam and the Ants? Both things are true, but they're a separate occasion. So when I got thrown out of university, I got myself a job or sort of lied my way into a job with a you know, live booking agency. And it was when I worked for them that I discovered Adam and the Ants and started to give them, get them gigs and stuff. They ended up getting signed to the agency that I work for. So this was before they broke huge. They were obviously on the just starting. They were kind of on the up, you know. But they didn't break for another four or five years after that. But but I was had long left. That I got really sick of working for that agency, and I wanted to follow my heart and be and be a musician myself. You know, that's I, and not be an agent. So I left. Uh, but I suppose yeah, I did sort of discover them yeah and, and it was later on that i became an a&r man in 1997 i was an a&r guy for warner brothers in the uk i was in a&r for 10 12 years ended up at sony i was like head of a&r for sony europe and it was very interesting for me to be on that side of the fence you know what i liked about a&r was you can sort of be creative in a slightly different way than you would be as a performer, you know, and I think by the time I went into A and R, I think I was creatively sort of needed a break. I think you know I needed a being a musician, being in a band, you know, having to generate everything yourself and originate everything. I think I was ready to sort of step back from that for a while. Was quite keen to work with other people's creativity. It was very stimulating for me to meet all these different people, musicians, artists help them out, talk their sort of musical language. I think they could realise that I could understand where, what they were going through and navigate, you know, a studio pretty well. And I could make quite detailed suggestions compositionally. And I think that was, I found that very in- interesting. The politics was less interesting to me, but I was, I found it very interesting, very, very stimulating. And I'm sure you saved a lot of young artists and bands money and time just with your expertise as a consultant, you know, and leading them towards success instead of around, yeah, I mean, I, you know? I'd like to think so, you know. Um, you know. I think it's a question of trust, you know. I was quite equipped to be able to get musicians who are with quite a strong sense of, uh, quite a, a sort of what's the word, uncompromising sense of what they wanted to do. 
think I could get their trust quite quickly to listen to a different perspective and help to walk them through that in, in a way where they didn't feel they were being sort of messed around with or diluted or disrespected. You know what I mean? So I think what, what surprised me was, you know, by the time I decided to become an A&R guy, I think Wang Chung, had, we'd split up or stopped working for about seven or eight years you know, and I think I felt slightly sensitive about that and, and thought no one would I thought they'd sort of think I was a bit of a joke you know, you know? You know a lot of people do that they tie their identity to their band that's what you're known for is is being a part of that band and then when it's on hiatus yeah. or, or it ends then uh, it's a not unlike a professional athlete who's out of the game, Major League Baseball, hockey, you know, rugby, whatever, I'm sure you're at a bit of a loss. And, and it happened to me when I left radio for a time as well. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but I was very pleasantly surprised by the, the sort of reaction that I got from people. And, and uh, it made me kind of appreciate by working with other people what I'd actually achieved. You know, it made me reevaluate it in a good, in a positive way. Wang Chung is coming with the cutting crew to Canada. We're very excited about it. Your Edmonton stop will be on June 15th at Casino Yellowhead. So everybody look out for this. This is going to be incredible. And you've got a long association with Nick and the cutting crew. Do you guys enjoy working together? Is there a lot of shenanigans backstage? Do you manage to get a little (laughs) relaxing drink or two in after and before the show? I'm the mild man of pop. <laughs> so I don't do anything. I'm too boring to do. <laughs> I, I've been around a few blocks in my time. I, I try and look after myself a bit these days. <laughs> but uh, it's lovely working with those guys. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. It's sort of opened things up for me in a different way that I didn't expect. You know, you know get on well with, with the guys. I think we complement each other really well. So yeah, it feels good. And it's nice to be able to mix our two repertoires together you know in the way that we do in quite an unusual way so it's a bit different you know and fresh so a lot of fun let's talk about you're in the thick of it you've got the hits you know dance hall days everybody wang chung tonight everybody have fun tonight let's go baby like this was the 80s this was the a beautiful decade for music you came right at the advent of the music video channel and in canada we had much music yeah. did you have a chance to associate with any of the vjs back in the day do you remember any we uh, we did yeah much music were pretty supportive of us i remember going into the you know studios the offices and stuff yeah we we interacted significantly with them you know so warm feelings from me and always you know appreciate the support that we had from much music mcv and the like you know it's a show is presented by openhighway.com the best content is customer generated content find out how to grow your attention currency and bottom line at the same time by connecting with the open highway team today at openhwy.com what's up and vice in a dance hall days We were cool and crazy When I, you, and everyone we knew Do believe, do, sharing what was true I said, dance all days long Dance Hall Days was used in the feature film The Fighter with Mark Wahlberg. You know, we've had a lot of a lot of syncs, you know, a lot of usage in film, TV, commercials, 
it still happens, you know, regularly now. But we were delighted with that, absolutely delighted. Um, doubly delighted because uh, about 10 years or eight years ago, we re-recorded our hits, you know, exact replicas of the hits, which was quite a difficult thing to do, but we managed to do it and do it quite well. Our re-record was the thing that was used in, in the movie, you know. So and it's been used in a lot of things, our re-records, because they sound so similar to the original. How come you had to re-record them? We did that as it was a kind of commercial move on our part. To, it means that you own the master and therefore you can sync it. You know, it's you get paid when it gets used in a movie or TV. The record company can't block you from doing but, that? No, wow. they can't because it's uh, a sufficient amount of time you know, since we, uh, you know, the restrictions are have lifted, you know, so we can do things like that. We've had a lot of usage from our re-records for the last eight, nine years, you know. It's been really good for us. Um, and it's very gratifying that people prepare to go. In fact, we were actually the victims of our own success. Uh, did you ever see any of the progressive insurance adverts, commercials? They're really big commercials in the state and they used everybody have fun tonight in one of their commercials big you know getting shown everywhere all the time they, they didn't believe it was a replica they thought it was the original some of the backing singers heard it and assumed that it was the original and therefore they should get you know <laughs> their royalties right and it you know it wasn't it wasn't it was our version <laughs> And so we had, we lost a load of money because of that. We had to pay out the ridiculous amounts of money to people. Basis that it had to be the original, but it wasn't. Who produced the remakes? Because I mean, that we, must have had it. Oh my God! You had a deft touch, and you could recreate that whole feeling and that sound uh, so many years yeah. later. That's yeah, we did it with. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was difficult. I mean, my God, we started off with dance all days, and it was it was like, my God, how did we do that? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Thirty years later, it's really hard, you know. Right. But once we got into the swing of it, it was remarkably, surprisingly, sort of not easy, but it was. It came together really well, you know. We kind of got into the swing of it, almost like muscle memory. Kind of, yeah. Plus, we, you know, obviously, all the, after all these years, you built up a certain amount of expertise, and you have a certain amount of experience in the studio. Technology being what it is in more recent times. It's, it's a lot easier to get to and create sounds that it, than it was back in the day. Billy Friedkin directed two of Hollywood's most groundbreaking movies. One was The French Connection, the other The Exorcist. You worked with him on To Live and Die in L.A. with the soundtrack title That's song. Right. Yeah, so what was he like? He was such a, a supporter. Yeah, he's remained friendly. We regularly see him. He's been so great with us. You know, He's obviously a legend in himself. and He's an amazing guy to hang out with he's got stories for days about everything you know and he's such a great raconteur and such an interesting man you know it was a great honor for him to be so enthusiastic about what we were doing and to give us such incredible amounts of freedom to do what we were doing on that particular soundtrack you know so he he basically loved the song wait from points on the curve he wanted something with that kind of rhythmic kind of approach and atmosphere. So he basically said to us, just go into the studio for three weeks, just be brilliant, <laughs> do whatever you want to do, just but this is what I like about your music, so have that in the back of your mind. You don't need to cue it to the visuals, just write some music. 
record it and send it to me. We did that and he absolutely loved it and was loved it so much that he even cut some of the movie to our music. You know, it's usually obviously the other way around in, in Hollywood. You know, you, you have to score to the visuals and you have to be, it's very strict and quite restricting what you can do. It was the opposite for us. We were incredibly lucky and then, and he was, he really got what we were doing. And, um, it's very positive but he did say I don't want you to write any songs you don't need to write any songs just instrumental music we were so enthused by the whole thing that we wrote some songs Jack wrote To Live and Die in LA and we sent it to him expecting him to go I told you I don't want songs <laughs> right but he loved the song so much and he just you know just caved in really and we just we wrote three or four songs and made it into our next proper Wang Chung record you know and he was completely sort of down with us you know it was great did you see the film before you wrote the music no we didn't we just saw the script but we just had an idea of the atmosphere of the movie and how, we scored it for that how much music did you create for the whole thing that eventually has become your album and to wit the soundtrack album right. well there's 90 minutes of instrumental music that we did to begin with which we did in about a week and a half or something you know writing it and recording it which was hard work but uh, obviously that's kind of whittled down in the studio so that the album's about like 20 minutes of instrumental stuff and then the other side is all songs you're obviously pleased with the results very very happy ladies and gentlemen wang chung is this the room I So Wang Chung in the 1980s led to incredible opportunities for you. When it really hit home to me, you know, when I was telling you just now about when I went to work as an A&R guy, you know, and I sort of really became, I really started to understand what we'd achieved, you know, and how lucky we were. Yeah, it's wonderful to, to do what you love and to get paid for it as well, you know? Do you think that yeah. the track Space Junk at the end of episode one of The Walking Dead helped introduce you to a whole different audience? I think it's amazing how uh, our music has so infiltrated, not just the old folk, but the younger people. Um, like my son is a really good barometer of that. You know, my son who's now 28 years old. But yeah, The, the Walking Dead's a really good example of opening up our horizons and people uh, sort of discovering us that hadn't even heard of us before. And then also things like Grand Theft Auto, you know, Vice City, where Dance for Days was featured in that massive game. And my, my son, you know, when he was, I can't remember how old he was, probably too young to be playing it. You know, he was playing Grand Theft Auto and he was like, oh, that's your son, your son was in that game, you know. And I was going, oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. We're pretty cool. Wow. He was kind of like, wow, my dad maybe is quite cool. <laughs> Uh, I didn't realize that he's quite cool. <laughs> have your children entered into the music business at all? Are they in, into anything creative? No, uh, he's a journalist. He loves music, a really good writer. He came out on the road with us a couple of times, you know, in the last five years or so. And he's sort of written a kind of fly-on-the-wall review of his experience, uh, which is very witty and very quite funny. Slightly making fun of us, but also respectful at the same time. What's his name? His name's Max Feldman, or Maximilian Feldman. He wrote one about us. He kept, we played on this thing called the 80s Cruise out, and he came out on that. Uh, he also came out on another tour with us. and Well, he's been on a few tours with us, actually, but 
he came out on another one. We ended up in Las Vegas and he wrote another piece about that, which is quite. I'll send it to you. When you're on tour and you're still you're still touring after all these years, be honest. Is it just mm-hmm. brutal, like the travel and everything? I mean, you get paid to endure the travel, the show you do for free, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know what? I sort of it can get quite tough, especially when you become an old fart like like us, old farts like us. It gets a bit more difficult. But having said that, I quite like the kind of sense of camaraderie sort of traveling together in a little gang you know quite like that it's the whole thing i I enjoy nick i really appreciate your time today and i want to end this off my producer in toronto is uh he is in depth to say the least and he's put together six degrees of wang chung oration we may not get the answers (laughs) that we're after we're wondering if you'll be a sport and play along with this okay here we go to Live and Die in L.A. reached number 41 on the Billboard Hot 100, September 1985. What other movie did director William Friedkin win the Best Director Oscar for? Um, was it The French Connection? Absolutely correct. In the hit Mark Ramsey Media podcast, <coughs> gratuitous plug for our pal, it's called Inside the Exorcist. Who voices the character of William Friedkin? Mark Ramsey. <laughs> If you said... Mark Ramsey. <laughs> you're absolutely correct. Look, at this is going so well. I thought this was going to be very hard. In episode seven of Inside the Exorcist, Redemption, which legendary cigar-smoking, unemployable citizen with a cane director does Friedkin have dinner with? Uh, Orson Welles, would it be? You are <laughs> nailing this game, sir. In 1995, which soon-to-be legendary Mr. Magoo-ish English actor did Orson Welles cast as Starbuck in his stage production of Moby Dick Rehearsed? Uh, uh, I know who that might be. I believe that he was fond of bowler hats once upon a time. Tell me the question again. Can you read me the question again? In 1955, which soon-to-be legendary Mr. Magoo-ish English actor did Orson Welles cast as Starbuck in his stage production of Moby Dick Rehearsed? Um, I want to get this. <laughs> You're very competitive. Uh, I like that. Uh, Patrick McGowan. Patrick McGowan it is. Yes. Oh. In his television series The Prisoner, Patrick McGowan debuted originally in Canada before the UK on September 8, 1967. What was McGowan's unnamed character's number in the show? Uh you are correct again. And here we go. In the series, who voiced the role of the invisible village announcer? Uh, it was my aunt, Fenella Fielding. There we did. We brought it home. <laughs> Good stuff, sir. That was a six degrees of separation classic right there. <laughs> Very good, very good. I actually use my brain a bit on that one. (laughs) You got me through it. We're getting you tuned up for the Canadian shows along with the cutting crew. And Nick, this has been a lot of fun. And I know it takes time out of your day and you got kids and, and things to do. And I appreciate your time. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. I look forward to seeing the shows when you get here. Yeah, definitely. Look forward to meeting you. Thank you to my special guest, Nick Feldman from Wang Chung. We reached him at his home in the UK, and he's now here in Canada doing a concert tour with his mates from Cutting Crew. It's a show is a Greg Shannon Media Sloan Baxter production. Research by Ken Adams. Thanks to our executive producer, G-Fark in Toronto. 
We invite you to follow us on social media at It's a Show Pod. That's on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Share, like, comment on the episodes, and even hit us with future guest ideas. We'd love that. Tell your friends to get It's a Show through our website at itsashow.ca. And you can also subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to leave a five-star review, or at least four and a half. You can also find us on Stitcher, too. I'm Greg Shannon. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thanks.